0: On this episode of This Week in Linux, Linus Torvalds announced the Linux 5.0 kernel is coming soon. We got some Linux mobile news from Ubiport's Ubuntu Touch and Purism's Librem 5. Then in app news, Bash 5.0 is out, and we'll check out some new interesting apps like a new password manager and a subtitle syncing tool. In distro news, we'll look at some news from Clonezilla Live, Fun2, and Fedora. Later in the show, we'll check out some security news for Metasploit and a new two-factor authentication phishing tool. Then we'll finish out the show with some Linux gaming news for Super Tux Cart and a story about my uncle. All that and much more coming up. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and it's your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean. DigitalOcean offers the simplest, most developer friendly cloud platform. It's optimized to make managing and scaling apps easy with an intuitive API, multiple storage options, integrated firewalls, load balancers, and much more. You can get all this plus access to their world-class customer support for as low as $5 per month, or you can use their flexible pricing structure for as low as 0.7 cents per hour. That's only seven-tenths of one cent per hour. DigitalOcean also has 2,000 cloud-agnostic tutorials to help you stay up-to-date with the latest open-source software, languages, and frameworks. You can get started by going to DigitalOcean for free with a $100 credit. That's a $100 credit by going to do.co/tux or do.co/tux. And just a side note, I'm going to be starting a new thing with a, with a droplet. I'm about to launch up this week, and it's going to try to sync up the. Uh, the telegram and the discord and the IRC and the matrix chat and uh, some other stuff. So I can have them like the, the goal is to have all the different chats synced up. So no matter which platform you use, you can be in part of the conversation. So we'll see if that works. If it does awesome. If not, well, you know, this is worth a shot. (laughs) But anyway, if you want to try something like that, you can get started with a hundred dollar credit by going to do.co slash tux or do.co slash tux. Up first this week is the Linux 5.0 kernel has been announced by Linus Torvalds that it's coming soon. And what's interesting about it is that this is not really any huge major change, even though the number implies that it is, because a lot of times software and programming, they usually use the main number to indicate a big massive breakpoint or a big major overwrite and things like that. In this case, it's really just because which I find that's pretty funny, really. So the they were going to call it the 4.21 kernel, and they decided to just stop at 20 and then create a uh, jump from 20 to 5.0. And really there's just because they wanted to. And I think that's pretty good because that's, that's funny because they, they kind of started that process uh, in the 3 series where when they had the 2.x, I think they went up to like it was definitely over 26. I'm not sure exactly when they stopped. I'm pretty sure it was 26 when they stopped. Um, but they got to um, the third three. They just decided to move it up to 3.0. Then the four, same thing. So uh, th- it seems like the new structure that they do it is just when they feel like doing it, which I I think that's pretty funny. Uh, but in this uh, Lin- Linus Torvalds in this article, this uh, mailing list post, he says that about 50% of the the new version will have will dr- be drivers. 20% of it is architecture updates. 10% is tooling. And the remaining twenty percent is a bunch of stuff like documentation, networking, file systems, and many more. So nothing in particular stands out, but they are removing some ancient drivers, as Linus puts it, uh, which is and specifically is uh, ISDN, which I'm surprised still exists. One of the really cool things about it is that AMD FreeSync is getting support for the for the uh, AMD GPU, so the open source version of, of uh, the AMD drivers. With paired with the Mesa 19.0, we'll be able to use the FreeSync or the VESA Adaptive Sync over DisplayPort, and this is one of the few things that has been missing from the open-source drivers for um, the AMD cards. So this is gonna be a really, really big thing for them. So overall, there's, there's, it's a lot of just the main thing, the, the you know, constantly iteration of new features and just improving the overall kernel. Uh, but there are quite a few things that are coming. Like last week, we talked about the Raspberry Pi getting touchscreen support and that's going to be in the 5.0. There's also going to be some improvements for 4K screens and things like that. So if you have a 4K screen, you'll be able to get um, better uh, views for the Terminus uh, console font, for example, and many more things. So we expect to see the release probably around the end of February or or early March. That's based on like the Current, They don't really have an exact scheduled date for a release, but based on the current structure of how often they update, it's probably going to be around somewhere around there. So if you'd like to learn more, I'll have a link to the mailing list post in the show notes. Up next in the show is Ubuntu Touch OTA 7 has been released. And if you've actually, if you been following on with the show for Destination Linux as well as This Week in Linux, you might know that I uh, currently am uh, using a Ubuntu Touch phone, well, Ubuntu Touch on a phone, uh, and playing around with it for a little bit. And uh, I still, it's not my primary right now, but because uh, it's not really ready for it, but it's very, very close for primary. Uh, it has all the, the the best things about like, um, you know, it's got all the, the main basics and stuff. So you just got like a browser and it's got a, uh, you know, the phone's functionality and the, like the, the uh, keyboard, decent keyboard structure. Like overall, it works pretty good. The thing that's about this is that they have changed to their release structure is now going to be doing it on a monthly basis. Um, they they haven't said exactly if it's always going to be the month or it's going to be like you know give or t- give or take a little bit, uh, but for the most part it's going to be on like much more comp- more uh, rapid development as far as like their releases and things like that. So just a little bit over a month since OTA six, they're now releasing OTA seven, and in OTA seven they've done a lot of improvements. For example, they've given some improvements to the Morph browser like the ability to close current tabs in the tab switcher view and prevent the device from sleeping when you're when a video is playing. And they've also done some options for default and per page zooming. And they've done some um, some compatibility fixes for multiple devices and driver improvements and things like that, as well as improve the theming for the keyboard so that you can now choose to have a light or dark a uh, dark colored keyboard as well as you can customize her being more like uh, like fancier or like a flat design and things like that. So overall, I think that the Ubuntu Touch operating system for your phone is quite good. And I think it has a ton of potential. And, you know, hopefully in the future I'll get like a Librem 5 and put Ubuntu Touch on it. Because they did say that they were going to have support for, the, for Ubuntu Touch on the Librem 5. So that would be great. So overall... Uh, if you do have Ubuntu Touch, a phone that's running it, you should you absolutely need to update because this is definitely worth it. So if you want to find out more about this, as well as you know try to see if your, your devices have support for it, you can go to ubports.org slash devices, or you can check a link in the show notes. Speaking of the Librem 5, Librem 5 has got a progress update for the end of the year of 2018 from Purism. And there's a lot of stuff that's been going on for this one. It's really nice to see that. They've got basic functionality for the Calls application to work. And they've also done it where they have uh, basic features like ringtones and things like that. They also have a new uh, daemon that interfaces between the SimCom, Sim7100 modem, and Pulse Audio. So you can configure Pulse Audio to work with a phone call. And this daemon is called, I'm going to butcher this, it's a Dutch word, I think. And it's hegtisse. And that's i gave it a shot anyway there's also uh some improvements for the lib handy library for adapting gtk3 applications to be more applicable to the form factor of mobile phones um, there's also been work on the vertboard as the Wayland based virtual keyboard then purism's chatty application also now has encrypted chat support as well as sms uh, you know text messages and things like that as well as they they've added uh, new mockups for the like the GNOME software that's been modified to work with a mobile UI and things like that, and they've also seen some, some improvements to the WL routes as their Wayland implementation for the backend. So there's a, quite a few things that I haven't listed yet. There's you know tons of things. If you want to check out the uh, blog post for the Peerism uh, website, I'll have a link to that in the show notes. Up next in the show is the release of Bash 5.0, or Bash as in the born again shell. And Bash, this version has a lot of new uh, variables and improvements. We're going to talk about a few of them. Like the first one, we're going to talk about is the Bash underscore argv zero, and it's basically what this does is it expands the name of the shell or shell script. So similar to how the old variable, the global variable of uh, dollar sign zero would allow you to do that. Um, so it's like the if you type in a, the name of a shell script and you use this variable it will check to see what the name of the shell script that you just ran is and then use that so you can just uh, not have to include that specifically in the script. They've also added epoch seconds as another variable and this expands the number of seconds since the Unix epoch or the timestamp which was like January 1st, you know, midnight January 1st, 1970 I think that's when it was and uh, there's also epoch real time it's similar to epoch seconds uh, for attaining the number of seconds since the e- Unix epoch but this version is a floating point with microsecond granularity. Uh, they've also done uh, some updates to the bash history so you can now with a new built-in history you can sh- remove ranges of history entries r- uh, pretty quickly so instead of having to go into your bash logs and stuff like that you can go to you know edit it directly inside of the the shell and there's been quite a few bug fixes and many more things. Uh, so there's there's a you know big list of stuff you want to check it out in the show notes. I'll have a link to the post the official release announcement from Bash in the show notes below. Up next in the show is a new password manager. It is called Buttercup. Yep, Buttercup. Anyway, Buttercup is a password manager that is a cross-platform desktop application written in Electron. They also have mobile apps and browser extensions, so you can use your credentials in a variety of your, uh, you know, form factors and applications and stuff like that. So if you would prefer not to use a desktop application and you want to use your browser, you can do that as well. Uh, it uses JavaScript for in the encryption structure for a what they call a secrets vault. The, the way it stores it is that it stores it all in an, a secure archive. And I'm pretty sure it's a custom extension, like I think it's .bcup, .bcup, uh, for the, uh, the, the actual extension of the, of the, for the archive. But the, the way they do it is typically they, they would want you to store it on your computer, kind of like how KeePass does it, where it stores it directly on this, this, the computer that is trying to use it. Or you could use it a, in a syncing service like Dropbox or something like that, where you could encrypt the file You know, the file is automatically encrypted, I mean, but you have an encrypted file on one of these services, and then you can, like, set up those services for another computer to, you know, pull in that particular archive. It doesn't have its own self-hosting structure. You would need to use some kind of um, either Dropbox or if you wanted to, like, self-host your own instance of C file or sync thing or something like that, uh, one of those would work too, but you would need something like that in order to do it. Uh, The archives are encrypted using AES specification, and they cannot be read by anyone, you know, unless you have the master password, so uh, even brute forced decryption would take so long it's not even possible, really. Uh, so in this case, it would have it would it's a very bene- it has a beneficial you know aspects for some people who don't want to have um, they want to use some kind of uh, password manager, but they don't want to use a self-host or they don't want to use the existing things like LastPass that have you know premium services that you have to pay for to use them or Something like uh, KeePass, which requires you to have a bunch of different uh, versions of, you know, forks of projects. So, for example, with KeePass, you have to have the, you know, KeePass XC is the current one for Linux users. Then there's also, like, KeyDroid and KeyFox, and uh, there's another one for Chrome, too, where you have to have all these different projects and, you know, set them up together so that they all work together. Whereas this one is like a all-in-one, but it doesn't do its own like syncing structure. So you'd have to find a solution for that. Uh, There are other options like Bitwarden that can allow you to do a similar uh, self-hosted approach. Uh, Whereas this one is a little bit more user-friendly as far as like Bitwarden would require you to set up like a Docker container on a, on a server. Um, But uh, whereas this is just, you know, a direct archive on your computer and uh, it might be easier to set up that way. So if you are interested, you can check out a link in the show notes to Buttercup password manager. And finally, in the app news section of the show this week is Subsync. It's an auto subtitle synchronization tool. Subsync is is really interesting because it basically takes um, a subtitle file and a you know movie or TV show file or, or whatever, um, and then would automatically create a you know syncing up the subtitles with the subtitle file with the data of the uh, the audio track of whatever you're watching. Now you could also um, essentially it doesn't, okay, first of all, it doesn't really automatically create subtitles. What it does is it takes an existing subtitle file and then corrects the timestamps to display those subtitles in a proper place. So it, it listens to the audio in the file in the, in the video file, and then syncs up what the words are, uh, that, you know, that are basically, uh, you know, listed pr- prior. So you have to transcribe it yourself, but for the most part, that's this is still a ridiculously good thing. Because if you ever had to do this before, so if you ever, you know, made, you know, any kind of content that requires you to do subtitles, it's a massive pain. Because you have to set up the uh, timestamp so you'd have to watch it and type it at the same time and then try you know, and you have to go back and then set the timestamp, go back, check it, make sure it loads in properly. It's like it's a lot of work for something that a lot of people would argue is not that much beneficial but this is a fantastic concept because it allows you to take your subtitle files and then add the structure you know much much quicker and with a lot less effort so that's awesome they've also got supports that with different languages I couldn't find a listing of exactly how many languages but it does support quite a few and it has a different like translation things for different like a dictionary structure for like referencing the tracks and the subtitles it also has uh, character encoding for auto-detection for that. It has a graphical user, user, user interface in order to utilize the thing so you don't have to like create a script to make it work. Uh, so it, it's quite, a, it's really cool, and it even supports uh, drag-and-drop and, and auto-updating uh, because I'm pretty sure it runs, uh, for Linux users, it, it's, it runs as a snap, so that's pretty cool, so it's really easy to get started with it. Um, I haven't a, given a try this yet. But I do plan to because SubSync does sound like a great tool and it would be very beneficial for, you know, creating a podcast and things like that. As long as I don't fumble too much with my words, you know, like I have in this particular segment. (laughs) Well, anyway, if you'd like to learn more about the SubSync, you can find a link to it in the show notes. Up first in distro news this week is Clonezilla Live 2.6.0-37 has been released. And Clonezilla, if you're not aware, Clonezilla Live is a distribution of Clonezilla that allows you to make copies or clones of your disks and able to store them for, you know, backup and restore and things like that. And it's a very useful tool and allows you to even take a system and then duplicate it on another another hardware and stuff like that. So you could do a lot of, um, you know, really quickly, uh, well, not quickly, because it does take a long time to make a copy of an entire disk. But it makes it easy to do so. and Clonezilla is very very uh, it's very nice to have in your toolbox. So the latest version of Clonezilla live has updated to the Linux kernel 4.19.13. It has uh, been updated for part clone to 0.3.12. Uh, the package LDM tool and havaged were added. Nah, I probably said that wrong. <laughs> and they've also added the uh, curl package too. So uh, there's a lot of been, a lot of improvements done to network manager, so that you can you know use, configure the network if necessary, especially for Wi-Fi to do the, to do the cloning, and they've also done some uh, addition to the massive deployment mode. The interactive client mode was added so that the light server can provide the ability to enter interactive mode of Clones of the Live in the clients themselves. They've also made it where the, it can handle UE, UEFI boot and a lot of other cool uh, features. So if you are interested in learning more about this particular release for CloneZilla Live or just CloneZilla Live in general, you'll have a link in the show notes. Up next is Funtu. Linux 1.3 has been released. And if you're curious, Funtu is actually a uh, its a variant style of Gentoo. It's not exactly like a, a derivative exactly, but it is, it's very similar in the way that Gentoo works. Um, actually, Daniel Robbins was the founder of Gentoo, and decided to leave Gentoo and create his own, you know, alternative, which was Funtoo. And he created uh, Funtoo in 2009, and uh, Gentoo started in 2000, like 2000. Uh, but uh, Robbins left Gentoo in that same year. Uh, but the Funtoo project is interesting because it doesn't provide a bootable live or installation ISO. Um, Gentoo has a co- a comprehensive installation manual as well as well as ISOs and but Funtu also has their own comprehensive installation manual that you can follow and it's um, it's 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 very similar to Gentoo but uh, it's it, there has there are some distinctive differences so uh, if you have or are interested in Gentoo you might want to try out Funtu as well uh, there's also another one, another version that's called Bintoo it's featured on the Funtu page and it's a kind of an easier installation version of Funtu. and it ha- comes with a, a de like uh, Gnome or plasma, so you can you know kind of easily get started, and uh, it's an interesting way of handling that. Having a you know fun two which is a very uh, you know basically hardcore structure of try, of learning how the the kernel works and setting all the flags for all the compilations and everything like that. Um, it's very similar to how Gentoo works, but it also has the bin version where you can do the uh, the you know, the more easily installed version of Funtu. So anyway, what Funtu 1.3 has moved to the LTS kernel and also now has uh, Amazon AWS images available, so you could use it on AWS if you want to. So it also has some security and bug fixes and a bunch of things. The only thing that's kind of iffy is the fact that they have deprecated the multi-lib support, which is the ability to use... 32-bit applications on 64-bit versions of a, of a distro so for example um, steam is very heavily using 32-bit multi-lib stuff so you wouldn't be able to play any games on fun if you wanted to because you know steam requires the multi-lib to work so there's things like that that kind of would create uh you know some issues doing so doing a few applications here and there but if you if you want to learn more about Funtu, you can find a link to the latest post or official for their wiki on uh, 1.3 in the show notes. In a previous episode, we talked about the potential for Fedora 31 to have a delay for up to even a year, so that they could do the retooling of their infrastructure to make it you know that make the distribution um, well, makes it have some fundamental changes in that so they can craft it out more much more quickly and have better um they could have better updates and just a smoother experience for the development. However, we now seem that the the developers have been discussing it. They've been discussing it since, you know, their first announcement in November. But the they're essentially it's not going to happen. Like it well, we're expecting it to not happen at this point because it's still possible that they might, but the uh the consensus so far is that they're going to instead of doing that, they're just going to, you know, buckle down and work more to do the retooling and the infrastructure improvements while they also work on the newer versions of Fedora. So the Fedora six-month release cadence will continue in the exact same way it has been, but they're also going to do some extra retooling stuff as well. Uh, Paul Fields announced today that they'll figure out how to accommodate... Not today, sorry, this week. <laughs> I don't know why I said today. They're trying to accommodate their planned... Uh, work without interrupting the Fedora release cadence. He says, After talking with the council, as well as some folks who are depending on the cadence, like IoT, it was clear we need to look at this option, but for now I intend to remove the cadence change from the objective requirements, unless more specific reasons why it has to happen become clear. So Fedora 30 remains under development for release in May, while it looks like Fedora 31 will be targeted for somewhere around the end of October. So there's just an update for that for our previous topic we talked about Fedora, And if you'd like to learn more, I have a link to the announcement from Paul Frields in the show notes below. So the hardware news section, we first have, have Introware. And Introware launches their Ares all-in-one PC. Introware is a UK-based PC manufacturer that makes custom Linux PCs. They use ODM Clevo structure, uh, so they take the hardware from Clevo and then they uh, heavily modify it to improve uh, the support and compatibility with the distributions that they o- that they offer, as well as you know most distributions too. So they create custom drivers and things like that to improve the overall experience with the hardware. So this particular one is a really nice looking uh, all in one PC. It's not the first Linux dist- Linux manufacturer to create an all in one. There was the System76 Sable a couple years ago, uh, but I, I couldn't find any, you know, any all-in-ones that are still be available for sale, uh, so uh, this is currently the only one I know of, uh, but it looks really nice, and uh, it looks like very sleek, and it's really interesting because it can be pretty powerful, so for example, it can be customized up to an 8th gen uh, Core i7, Intel Core i7, uh, 32 gigs of DDR4 RAM, and 2 terabytes of NVMe storage. So it could have this, and by the way, the core i7 would be like a six core Intel CPU. So like a six cores, uh, it, it's going to be, it'd be a beast. So you could get a, you know, a very beefy machine in an all-in-one, you know, monitor. If you're not sure what an all-in-one is, it's a, it's basically a big monitor with a computer on the back of it. Um, and it starts out at, um, 739 pounds because it's a UK base. They use the pound sterling and it has a 24 inch matte, HD 1080P screen. Only thing that's kind of issue is that they they only offer like a couple different different variations. So like the RAM can be different, the, the the CPU can be different, things like that. But there's not you know a lot of big differences. You can't get a a, a dedicated GPU or anything like that, and you can't get an AMD version of it. It's only um, you can only get an Intel version. It'd be really cool if you can get an AMD like APU with it, so you can get like the the combination thing that they made. That'd be pretty cool if they do like another version. But overall, this does seem like a really nice piece of hardware. Uh, if you are interested in getting a all in one PC, or know someone who might, this might be worth looking into. Uh, personally, I prefer to have multiple monitors that are just kind of like dumb monitors and have like a big beefy machine on the side, uh, just because that allows me to. Uh, replace you know the parts more efficiently and more effectively Uh, at the same time they can be more powerful but overall this would be really cool for like a hotel lobby or you know um, an office or something like that just you know just if you want something that's very lean but at the same time pretty powerful this could be a good option for that so if you want to learn more you can go to check out the link in the show notes for the introware Ares all-in-one pc and the next hardware news is AMD has announced at CES this year that the AMD 7, Radeon 7 GPU, is going to be available in February. Now this is the first ever 7 nanometer GPU that is, it will be available for consumer level because they announced that the 7 nanometers was going to made for like data centers and things like that. A couple of months ago uh, and so the turnaround between you know announcing that particular you know offering and then now announcing the one for consumers that's not very long so that's pretty cool that they can get it that quick so the Radeon 7 uh, was announced at CES like I said and they've done uh, some interesting things where they built it on an enhanced second generation AMD Vega architecture so kind of like the Vega 64 but you know much you know actually quite a few improvements over the current Radeon uh, rx vega 64 so they now have 60 compute units uh 30 38 hold on, three thousand eight hundred and forty stream processors running at up to 1.8 gigahertz 16 gigabytes of high bandwidth memory second gen high bandwidth memory uh up to uh w- one terabyte per second memory bandwidth 40000 0, 0, uh, 4096 bit memory interface and it's basically 35% higher performance in Battlefield 5 and up to 42% higher performance in other games. So like there's there's quite a few improvements to this overall offering and if you watch the video it's really interesting to have um, the the CEO of a- AMD talk about all the things that they're doing and demonstrate the support and the performance they have. So, for example, they just demonstrated that some of the games were getting, were running this particular Radeon 7 GPU, they were able to get like 110, 120 frames per second at the highest levels on a 4K display so, like, that's ridiculous because a lot of the times, you know, people expect nothing more than 60 frames at 4K because, you know, the hardware is not powerful enough. Or it's the, the stuff that is powerful enough. It's so expensive that no one wants to do it or no one wants to pay for that. So this is really cool that they're going to making it, you know, much more reasonable price, but also very powerful hardware. So very nice to see. And if you want to learn more about this, I'll have a link to the Gaming on Linux um, article that, I, that listed in the video as well as... Uh, the specific keynote video from AMD themselves at CES in the show notes. So someone mentioned something in the chat room. The Levise guy in the live chat mentioned something that was kind of interesting, saying that the you know the card is seven hundred dollars basically, and I said it was reasonably priced. What I meant is that it's a brand new innovative technology that is typically when they release things like that, these manufacturers put the price at like ridiculous, impossible to use like $2000 or in case of like the the Nvidia's Titan dry, uh, graphics card which is $3000 I mean it has $700 in comparison it is much more reasonable than the uh, the alternatives is all I'm saying like it's not it's, it's not reasonably priced overall it's not like an inexpensive card but it is in comparison to the others uh, the other cards in the market it's a fairly reasonable price so yeah there's that on to the security news Metasploit 5.0 has released a new version. Well, obviously, 5.0 is, that's a new version. <laughs> so they've they got some new data services in it. Uh, they've introduced uh, fresh evasion capabilities. Uh, they support multiple languages now, and it builds upon their framework's uh, growing repository of offensive security content. And offensive as in offensive, you know, attacking security. So to, to technically to attack your security to make sure you can uh, harden it. So like pen testing and things like that. So if you're uh, interested, they, they pen, Metasploit is one of those like very popular, very useful tools that are in the pen testing, the ethical hacking um, ecosystem, like Kali Linux and Parrot OS and things like that. So it's a very, it's very popular and a very powerful application that is very useful for pen testers. So if you'd like to learn more, you can find a link in the show notes to Metasploit 5.0. Up next is a new pen testing tool that allows you to fish two-factor authentication codes. So essentially, like every new hack provides more and more ways of seeing. Like it becomes clear that the older forms of two two-factor authentication are not really protection, like reassuring protection anymore. Like they used to be, because there's a lot of different things that are work. People are working on making like uh, ways to compensate or mitigate these. Uh, these, this break so allows you to have uh, the will, ability to capture like one-time passcodes and things like that. So the uh, probably going to butcher this, but the Modliska, which is Polish for mantis, that's why mantis is in the video. Uh, but anyway, it's a, it's a tool that allows you to automate the phishing of one-time passcodes sent by text messages or generated by using authentication apps and things like that. Now. It's really interesting because of how powerful this could be. But there are some caveats too that's not as big it's not like catastrophic or anything. So on one level, the tool sits on the same server as a phishing site capturing any credentials and two factor authentication tokens the user can be tricked into sending. But instead of like cloning the fish site, you know, like the old way of doing it, you know you take it, you make a website and it would just be like a copy of or as as close as a copy as they could from the main site. This works like a reverse proxy, so it's actually kind of really interesting. And technically speaking, it's cool in the concept because it allows you to uh, feed the user data from the real site to make an attack look more convincing. So the users they are interact they think that they're interacting with the real site because they actually are interacting with the real site. It's just also collecting the data as a middleman while they interact with a real site. So um, the proxy allows it to you know, manipulate and work with the real site in every way. So even like Google, where you have to go through like the, the process of entering the Google account, then the password, then do the two-factor authentication, even through all that, you can get the, the codes to get in. So it's very interesting that this was possible because it doesn't, like the fact that it doesn't use like a cloning structure, but it uses like a sitting on like an extra layer on top is pretty cool. As far as like, you know, conceptually how it works. It's not good in general because, you know, it's fishing, but still, Uh, but it does have limitations because the main thing is that most of these two factor authentications have a restriction so that these codes will only work for like 30 seconds of the window once they're generated. So if you can't, if you capture the code, you'd have to utilize it very quickly. Otherwise, it'd be worthless, uh, because at that point they would repl- they'd have, You'd have to get a whole brand new one to get to access it. And it also depends on being able to, you know, socially engineer a target to use a phishing site in the first place. So there are some limitations to it. It's just an interesting concept that I thought I, w- I wanted to cover because of like the the reverse proxy aspects of it. Uh, and also in some cases, if you use a password manager. Some password managers have these uh, these phishing domain checking. So, so if you go and try to enter your password into a phishing uh, domain that's like known as being a phishing attack, it will stop it and like let you know this is a phishing site or a suspicious site anyway. And they also have a video demonstrating how it works. So they set up a, a demo account for Google and they log into a Google account. And then there's like this administration panel that once you log, once you go into the panel, you can see it'll say like um, imitate user. And what it does when you click that button, it will go to the pay, to that website and then automatically apply the two-factor authentication codes and be on the account as that user. So, in general, potentially scary because of how much how you know bad that could be. But there's also some you know some situations where it's not really practical and more because of the thirty-second window, it's not likely it to be an issue. But I still think that the idea and the concept itself is interesting. So if you want to learn more about this, I'll have a link to Modlishka in the show notes below. In some unfortunate security news, we have some uh, security holes that have been uncovered for systemd. The security company Qualys Qualis uh, probably uh, has some revealed some three uh systemd security vulnerabilities. Now, most of these Security. Two of these security vulnerabilities are much or much worse than the other one, but uh, you know oh, we'll get to that in a second. But first of all, most systems, most Linux distributions, utilize system D. A significant portion of those that utilize it are vulnerable to these these uh, issues. However, uh, SuSE Linux Enterprise OpenSuSE Leap Fifteen and Fedora Twenty Eight and Twenty Nine are not exploitable because they use a, their user space is compiled with GCCs. Uh, attack F-stack clash protection flag, which because the reason why is that this is a um, this is a variation of a stack overflow bug called a stack clash. The stack memory is forced to allocate memory to deal with a data overflow. Then it overlaps with the other memory areas, and once there, the data smashes the stack or memory space, enabling an attack possible. So these there's two, three cases of these issues, and two of them, which is uh, CVE, I'm not going to do the whole thing, but 168.64 and 168.65 are memory corruptions. And then the 168.66 is out-of-bounds memory, uh, out memory read. The first two, the 65 and 64, both of those have been uh, patched already by the SystemD team and are likely available in the distribution that you're using, uh, depending on how fast those update. Uh, for your distribution, more, more than likely pretty quick. Uh, but what happens is that it allows the uh, multiple megabytes of command line arguments to be passed to the Linux system logger, or syslog, and that causes the uh, systemd's journald to crash, and then this creates a hostile local user to take over the system, allows a hostile user to, lo- to take over. Now, the local user part is very important. Now, this is a vulnerability, and it allows to you know el- escalate privileges and things like that, but it does require local physical access or a previously compromised system so this is not going to allow you to compromise a system in in you know remotely or anything once you've already compromised it this could have been used as a method to escalate privileges but other than that you know you still have to somehow get into the system in the first place so it's not it's a vulnerability but it's not like a remote execution issue and two of the three have already been worked, have already been fixed and, and patched, and the other one is currently being worked on, and more than likely will be patched very soon. So another thing is that the Koalas people say that they have uh, created some exploits for the first two things, the 64 and 65, uh, but they're not going to release them. And they haven't released them yet, and they don't have any plans to release them anytime soon. We don't know if they're ever going to release them or not. More than likely, will for proof of concept once they're done and once the patches are are finished. Uh, but just to let you know, uh, these you know you should update your system as soon as possible if you do have uh, one of the distros that is affected. So either not Fedora or not OpenSUSE, and uh, then you would be probably affected. But at the same time, it's not a huge attack vector. It's just. A lot of people would probably be attacking System D because it's very common and very popular to hate System D. So, anytime there's a security vulnerability in a system like or a project like that that has a lot of hatred towards it, more than likely people are going to uh, exaggerate how how painful or how uh, bad this situation is. And while it is a pretty bad situation, it does require you to already have remote access. Or you've already compromised the system, or you have physical local access to the system. So there's some. It's not as bad as it might be claimed in other places. So anyway, if you'd like to learn more, I have a link to the uh, the the uh, the the, uh, system down um, exploit article about this. So in the link, the link will be in the show notes. Up next in the show is some more uplifting news, rather than the security issues. Uh, and that is Humble Bundle is now doing a ebook bundle for photography books. So last week we talked about, you know, uh, Dark Table and Raw Therapy, and this week I uh, just happened to see that they were doing a Humble Bundle for uh, a variety of different photography books. So I think it was you know very good timing, I suppose. And this has a lot of digital field guides for multiple Canon and Nikon cameras. It has books on exposure, lighting, uh, night and low light photography black-and-white digital photography, and it also has books on like specific styles of photography like weddings and family portraits and concert photography, uh, like the different ways of doing product photography and things like that, and a bunch more. I didn't actually get a total of how many books there were, but it looks like there's about over 20, maybe even 30 books in this. Uh, I don't know exactly how many, but uh, it's a significant amount of books. If you were in, If you're interested in photography or curious about getting started with it, this might be a really good opportunity to get a lot of, um, you know, good guides pretty cheaply because I think you can get all of them for like fifteen dollars or something. Um, I think that's the like the highest tier is the fifteen dollar tier. So anyway, if you're interested, I'll have a link to the humble photography books uh, in the bundle for it in the show notes. But before we move on, I want to let you know that the link in the show notes will be an affiliate link to the humble bundle. So if you do decide to purchase it and use that link. Dux Digital will get a small percentage of the purchase uh, towards the channel. And I would really appreciate if you were to do, if you did want to buy it, that you would use that link because that would benefit the channel and this show. So, anyway, thanks again uh, for using it if you do. And uh, yeah, I have a link in the show notes for the Humble Photography Books bundle. So, next up in the show is the Linux Gaming section. And first up is a story about my uncle. This is, okay. It's a technically it's a video game called A Story by My, My Uncle, and it's a really interesting game. And first up, before we talk about the game specifically, I want to let you know that the that Steam has the game uh, in a giveaway right now for free. So you can go to the Steam page. I'll have a link in the show notes for this particular game on Steam, and it's just free right now. So you can go and get it for free. Uh, this is only until uh, January fourteenth, so m- like mid Monday roughly, depending on what your time zone is. Anyway. Uh, so that's how long it'll be available. So when this the show will be, it's recorded on the 12th and will be released on the 13th. So you should have a little bit of time if you watch it quickly. Otherwise, sorry. This game is a first-person platformer, and it's a really cool gameplay uh, system. It's a it has like a grappling like a, a electric gla- grappling system. Uh, it's very cool. The visuals are. Mostly fantastic. Like, there's a lot of cool stuff about it. The, like, the, the visuals of it, like the areas and the, the paths and the, everything that you do is really nice looking. The character models of yourself and the uh, effects of the, the grappling hook is really cool. The NPC character models are not so good, they're not as high quality. Uh, they they kind of look out of place, but it might be a style choice that they chose to do. And, and it does kind of give it some more quirkiness to it. But overall, I think that uh, it just seems out of place. But the graph, everything else, the graphics look fantastic. So, if you're interested in checking out a first-person platformer, uh, I would say this is definitely worth playing. I mean, it was worth. I I bought it back in the, like uh, a couple of years ago, and it was very great then. So it's definitely worth free. So, <laughs> if you want to find out more uh, or you want to play this game, I'll have a link in the show notes for the free uh, uh, Story About My Uncle giveaway that Steam's doing. So this is until January 14th, like I said. I don't remember exactly what time, uh, but I think it's somewhere around midday uh, Eastern time or so. So yeah, link in the show notes. In a previous episode, we talked about Super Tuxcart getting online multiplayer. And I am very pleased to let you know that the oh, online multiplayer beta has been released. So if you want to try it out, SuperTuxCart, they're allowing you to download a tarball, which you extract the tarball and then run, I think it's called like run.sh or rungame.sh, something like that, in the front aspect of it, so that way you can find all the different libraries it needs that are inside the tarball. And you just run that in your uh, your console or your terminal, however you want to do it, and it'll just load the game that right, th- right there. So you'd also need to create an account, an online account, because they have their own online system. So you want to create your account, and then uh, you want to log in. And once you do log in, you want to make sure, like, well, it's up to you whether you want to save the password or not. But if you don't, you'd have to, every time you want to play online, you would need to uh, re-log in every single time. So might want to save it, might not. It's up to you. Um, but there's also a lot of cool things about it, because uh, I did give it a shot. Um, the, the, multi, the multiplayer modes actually include regular racing, capture the flag, and some others. There's even like a soccer mode that I played a little bit uh it's not it's kind of like trying to do rocket League combination of Super tux Cart. It's not really anywhere close, but it's kind of fun anyway because of how you know silly it is uh but Super Tux Cart is a really fun game and it's been around for like eighteen years or something but this this new multiplayer or online multiplayer aspect to it is ridiculously improving to the game because so it makes it so much more fun to play against people you know and things like that. And it's just it's just fun. So I've got a chance to test out the beta against Ryan, a fellow co-host of Destination Linux, as well as Dustin from Ubuntu Budgie. And we played uh, a few races. Uh, well, technically, they played a few races. I only played one race. And unfortunately, the default control key bindings for using a controller are terrible, really weird structure set up in the game. So, I was uh unfortunately I lost the race that I played, but it was not my fault. It was the controller's fault. It was technically the controls set up inside of Super Tusk Kart. That's what ha- I mean Ryan will give you a different story, but that's what happened, okay? <laughs> so, if you want to try out this game, you can go download the tarball. I have a link to that in the show notes. And maybe we should do like a community, you know, gaming night or something where we could all play like Super Tux Kart online in one of the game servers and stuff. That'd be fun. So if you're interested in that, let me know in the comments or in the live chat if you're watching this live, and let me know if you'd be interested in that. So we, because we, I definitely want to do that. So hopefully you do as well. You'll find a link to the tarball and the blog post for Super Tux Kart's uh, open uh, online multiplayer beta in the show notes. And finally, this week, Steam Play on ProtonDB has reached over 500 platinum games in the database. So, ProtonDB is a keeps track is a community website that keeps track of games and does testings to a variety of different distributions and different games to see if a game works well with Proton or the Steam Play structure within you know with the new Steam that they announced a few months ago, or the new Steam compatibility layer that they announced a few months ago. And we now are at currently, as of this recording, uh, at 507 Platinum rated games. So Platinum means it just works without having to do any special uh, command, launch commands or anything like that. It just works. Uh, so we actually have 507 right now of rated games, but there's also the rated trending, which means that it is uh, these games are on the verge of being rated uh, Platinum, but they're not technically Platinum yet. They just need some more testing and some things like that. They currently, it's at 578 platinum rated games. So it goes even even higher when you add the trending section. So if you wanted to try it out, there's some games that are really, really good games that are on the list like Red Faction Guerrilla, Hitman 2, Outlast 2, Call of Duty 4 Modern Warfare, Star Wars Republic Commando, and even Crazy Taxi, which is a port to PC from the Dreamcast. So It it looks pretty dated because it was made on the Dreamcast, but it's still fun and it's like a good nostalgic game. So if you want to try that, you could try that on uh, the Proton or using Steam Play. So anyway, if you want to try look at the rest of the games that are available on the Proton DB, I have a link in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like what I do here on this show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute via PayPal, Patreon, and many more. You can find out more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. Or you can order the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt by going to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere. Or if you're in Europe, you can go to tuxdigital.com slash Linux is Everywhere EU for shipping inside of Europe. We also have ways you can contribute without any cost to you by using our affiliate links. You can find links for places like Amazon, private internet access, and many more. You can learn. You can find all these by going to tuxdigital.com/affiliates. If you'd like to submit some GNUs to the show, then visit the subreddit by going to thisweekinlinux.reddit.com. If you like some more podcasting goodness from me, then check out the latest episode of Destination Linux, as I'm a co-host of that show. And just a reminder: this show is live usually every Saturday, so join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux GNUs each week. Thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Tanell with Tux Digital, and as always, keep using, learning, and enjoying Linux.